Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome back to She Done It. Today we have the final episode in my summer break guest series. This time it comes from a brilliant podcast called Words to That Effect which is produced and hosted by Connor Reed. Back in May, he was kind enough to invite me on his show to talk about Golden Age detective fiction, and he's very generously allowed me to replay that episode now while I'm taking my much-needed August holiday from making the podcast. If you enjoy what you hear, do head to the Words to That Effect website at wttepodcast.com to find more episodes, And make sure you subscribe to the show in your podcast app as well. Connor tells me that series four of his show starts in September, so you won't have long to wait for brand new episodes. Here's Golden Age Detective Fiction from Words to That Effect. Enjoy. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. 
A few weeks ago, I was watching a Netflix detective show called Fallet. It's very good. It's a Swedish show, which seems like it might be yet another Nordic noir detective show, but is actually not. It's a comedy police procedural where these two inept and soon-to-be-fired police officers, one Swedish and one British, have to pair up to solve a crime and their careers. It plays a lot on the tropes of crime dramas, and we're introduced to the two characters in a way that sort of really parodies the genre. So the Swedish cop, Sophie Borg, is chasing a criminal across a windswept landscape when he stops at the triple border between Sweden, Finland and Norway. Suddenly, two other detectives emerge from their respective sides of the border. You know, reminiscent of shows like The Bridge and The Tunnel with their dead bodies lying across national boundaries. But instead of this being the beginning of a dark and complex international police investigation, Sophie tries to shoot the criminal in the leg against police orders, completely misses, and shoots him in the head. The other protagonist, meanwhile, is Tom Brown, a St. Ives police officer who is equally terrible at his job, but in a very different way. In his opening scene, he's in an English country manor, pacing slowly around a room of well-dressed suspects seated at a large dining room table. He's trying to dramatically accuse the murderer, but he can't get his facts right, he gets completely flustered and nervous, and he has to embarrassingly leave the room to calm himself down. It's a classic scene, except for the detective. Unlike Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple, say, Tom Brown is not an unfailingly insightful detective. Now, these two scenes nicely sum up two eras of crime fiction, almost exactly a century apart. Today's hugely popular Nordic noir, with its landscapes as brooding as its psychologically damaged protagonists, its morally complex murderers and detectives all caught up in institutional power struggles, corruption and conspiracies. These stories are all parodied in Fallot. The other scene, though, is from a century earlier, from what is often called the golden age of detective fiction. The English country estate, a detective pacing the room, explaining how they've solved the crime, revealing the solution to a puzzle and the clues which were there all along if you, the reader, have been sufficiently keen-eyed to spot them. It's so easy to parody this scene because it's so familiar. It's Reverend Green in the drawing room with the candlestick. It's a shocking murder in a cosy English village or the country estate of a well-off family where everyone is a suspect. It's the locked room mystery. It is, above all, a work where the puzzle is always the centre of the story. So, where do all these familiar ideas come from, exactly? What do we mean when we talk about Golden Age detective fiction? And are our assumptions about the tropes and rules of this fiction really all that accurate? So... I constantly have ideas for podcasts, like some more viable than others. That's been the case for years. And sometimes I use them in like professional work I'm doing. Sometimes I never do anything with them. I think when I got to the point when I was ready to just do something of my own, I was in the midst of a like serious episode of reading all my detective novels again. And I also had just read this book, this non-fiction book called The Golden Age of Murder, which is a sort of history of the detection club and the people in it by a writer called Martin Edwards. And he'd done so much great research around the writing as well as the writers themselves. And I just thought, oh, wow, this is a really amazing approach. And I think it would work really well in audio. And I sort of tested the idea on a few people I know in podcasting and got some very positive, like, yeah, I think people would definitely listen to that kind of 
reactions. So I thought, you know what, let's not make it any more complicated. Just go for it. This is Caroline Crampton talking to me about how she came up with the idea for the podcast She Done It. This is a really great show if you've never come across it before. It's a podcast about the stories and mysteries behind Golden Age detective fiction and particularly the female writers who were so dominant in the form. Now, I've used this term a couple of times, golden age detective fiction, so I should probably clarify what I mean exactly. So it's a term that's often used somewhat interchangeably with classic detective fiction, murder mystery fiction, clue puzzle fiction, or for many people, simply stories like Agatha Christie, because for so many people, Agatha Christie is classic crime fiction. I'll stick with Golden Age Detective Fiction because it's one of the most common names, but really what we're talking about is a very specific type of detective fiction with a very recognisable set of tropes written roughly between World War I and World War II, kind of the 1910s to the 1940s more or less. So I think there are definitely those academic definitions. I personally like to think of it as true Golden Age Detective Fiction is the stuff that's written between about, let's be a bit looser and say like 1910 and 1950 like slightly expand the the definition but then there's also a lot of stuff that I would think of as golden age style which is where writers are following the tropes and habits of the writers of that period even though they're writing in 2012 or whatever. So while there is a time period involved you can write in the style of golden age detective fiction today and many do. Because it's really about the central tropes, the devices or cliches or however you want to think about them. And there are, when it comes down to it, four very central tropes. Let's call them, oh I don't know, the big four. What I'm going to do in this episode is elaborate on each of these four areas in order to unpack the mystery of why these types of stories were and remain quite so popular. Trope number one, the crime is always murder. Murder most foul. I think our murderer will try to kill me again tonight. Will this be another murder most foul? In the crime fiction leading up to the Golden Age, murder was not nearly as central to the stories. Think of all the crimes in the Sherlock Holmes tales, for example. Murder is there, but the crime is equally likely to be theft or fraud or blackmail. With the advent of Golden Age detective fiction, murder becomes the crime. But it's a very particular type of murder. Generally, a Golden Age detective fiction story is relatively bloodless in that there's a corpse, but there's no particular interest in how they physically became a corpse. Like The description of the noise it made when they were hit over the head. We're not interested in that. Um, the element of puzzle is I think very important. So the idea that murder is a is less a tragedy and more a puzzle to be solved. So murder is a puzzle. The focus is on finding the murderer, not dwelling on the disturbing particulars of a death by poisoning or the bloody details of a fatal bludgeoning. In 1928, when the American author S.S. Van Dyne wrote a somewhat tongue-in-cheek 20 rules for writing detective stories, he included as rule number seven. There simply must be a corpse in a detective novel, and the deader the corpse, the better. No lesser crime than murder will suffice. 300 pages is far too much bother for a crime other than murder. After all, the reader's trouble and expenditure of energy must be rewarded. So the murder leads to the puzzle. Which brings us to our next trope. Trope number two. 
The novel is a puzzle, there are clues, and there are rules. If his body had been discovered in the lake, eh bien, a simple murder problem or an intriguing suicide. But his clothes are no Monsieur Davenheim, right? We are dealing here, Miss Lemon, with a body of evidence requiring the most skillful dissection. People differ on this, but I personally do quite like the idea of fair play. This idea that the writer is almost on the same side as the reader rather than in competition with them. So the writer is leaving clues and introducing suspects in such a way that when the reader is reading the story, they can work out the solution rather than it being the case that you read what is essentially 11 chapters of a thriller and then in the 12th one they go and by the way this was the culprit and there's no way you could know that other than just by reading the 12th chapter so I do think that idea of fair play even when a writer is subverting it just the fact that it's there to be subverted I think is an important characteristic. This sense of fair play with the author sticking to the rules is incredibly important in Golden Age detective fiction If the murder is a puzzle, then the reader has to be, at least in theory, able to solve the crime from the clues presented in the book. But this is not actually as simple as it sounds. Firstly, as we'll look at a little bit later, readers may demand all the clues, but then they may not actually care if the mystery is particularly solvable. I mean, the fact that people read novels of this type more than once, as many, many do, proves that there's more to this than simply a puzzle. I mean, they're works of literature, they're not crosswords. Secondly, authors broke and continue to break these rules all the time. And in the best cases, readers adore these books. So the murder of Roger Ackroyd breaks the rules, but is often considered Christie's best work. And these rules I'm referring to were mostly unwritten, but several people did try to codify them. Sometimes they're slightly mischaracterised. Like they're, they're referred to as the rules in a joking or even ironic sense, I would say, in that even the people who wrote them out, people like Ronald Knox and S.S. Van Dyne, A.A. Milne and T.S. Eliot were also people who referenced it a lot. They were, A, very much positioning it as this is my own opinion, especially Milne, you know, the essay that he wrote in the introduction to The Red House Mystery, his only detective novel. He was essentially saying, this is how I would like detective fiction to be. I'm not saying anyone else has to do it this way, but this is what I want from it. And I've now written a novel that conforms to my own prescriptions. And he also has a slightly amusing postscript where he says, and I didn't realise until I'd done it, that even though I'd written my ideal detective story, I couldn't actually enjoy it because I knew what was going to happen. Um, So he slightly shot himself in the foot there. But yeah, so they they are rules only in a very joking loving sense. Van Dyne's rules are a little bit longer, but Ronald Knox's Ten Commandments, he was a Catholic priest, are a little bit more succinct, and they give you an idea of some of these rules, a word most definitely in quotation marks. One, the criminal must be someone mentioned in the early part of the story, but must not be anyone whose thoughts the reader has been allowed to follow. Two, all supernatural or preternatural agencies are ruled out as a matter of course. Three, not more than one secret room or passage is allowable. Four, no hitherto undiscovered poisons may be used, nor any appliance which will need a long scientific explanation at the end. Five, no Chinaman must figure in the story. Six, no accident must ever help the detective, nor must he ever have an unaccountable intuition which proves to be right. 7. The detective must not himself commit the crime. 
8. The detective must not light on any clues which are not instantly produced for the inspection of the reader. 9. The stupid friend of the detective, the Watson, must not conceal any thoughts which pass through his mind. His intelligence must be slightly but very slightly below that of the average reader. 10. Twin brothers and doubles generally must not appear unless we've been duly prepared for them. These type of rules are not unique to detective fiction. All genres have rules and expectations. That's part of what makes them genres. And many of the central rules, as you find with Knox, are ones that would put the story into a different genre. So no supernatural elements, or really it becomes fantasy or horror maybe. No international espionage, or it becomes a spy thriller. Most of these rules, however, are about playing fair by the reader. No identical twins, no culprit who's never been in the story, no impossible-to-guess murder weapon. No cheating, in other words. Which brings us on to trope number three. Trope number three. Reader participation is fundamental. Well, if they won't believe us, we'll just have to go and solve this crime ourselves. Won't we? In golden age detective fiction, the reader can always, in theory, solve the murder. For me anyway, and I think for a lot of other people, this idea that uh, the reader can participate in the puzzle is one of the biggest ones for what we call golden age detective fiction. Um, And it's interesting, I think, the Detection Club, which was this cohort of writers, uh, mostly British writers, who um, sort of formed this little dining society in the late 1920s, which actually still exists today. And they had this, again, this very much for fun, this ritual that they went through where a new member swore on the the skull, a skull called Eric, that they would uphold the tenets of the detection club. And one of them was about playing fair by the reader. But they also, uh, you know, put it out there that they were excluding, you know, writers of espionage stories, writers of thrillers, that kind of thing, that this was just about the pure puzzle golden age detective novel. Except that's absolutely not what the club was even from the beginning and definitely isn't now. Like Agatha Christie wrote multiple espionage stories, yet she was totally allowed to be in it. Um, And it seems like a lot of clubs it, the boundaries were drawn based on who the people who were already in it wanted to invite. A good author is not going to let a prescriptive rule get in the way of a good story, but it's certainly true that, perhaps more so than in any other genre, reader involvement and the awareness of this by the writer is absolutely central. There's a degree of flattery in this. You know, it feels good if you solve the crime before the detective. And there's also this idea that it's kind of democratic. The solution is open to anyone, not just this quasi-superhuman master detective. But there are problems with this assumption. I think there's a really interesting tension in the Golden Age detective novels about this, because although both authors and writers are obsessed with this idea of fair play and, yes, it being a democratic narrative form in which anyone can be the hero, essentially... I don't think that's actually how it operates in practice. People like to know that that's a possibility. But actually, nobody, I don't think anyone really reads these novels like that, with a notebook open next to them, noting down every time they spot what they think might be a clue, making their deductions, pausing at the end of every chapter, etc. So it's more of an ideal than a reality. 
but it's an ideal that people like to know is present, if that makes sense. Yeah, this is important. If you aren't reading a novel to solve the crime before the detective, why are you reading it? If you already know the twist, why read the book or why watch the TV or film adaptation for that matter? I think with with a film adaptation, you might watch it just because you're interested to see how they've handled it. You know, you want to see the aesthetics of it as well as the plot. But I personally find I have two different ways of reading anything. Um, so I can I read I'll read a, a sort of classic puzzle orientated golden age detective novel once um, just to find out what happens and I'll sort of race through it and I'm reading it in that classic like who done it that's the question in my mind all the time and then I might depending on whether I enjoyed it and thought it was good I will then read it again not immediately but you know maybe a month or two or even years later and then. I know who done it, and I'm reading it more for the enjoyment of the style, the characters, the setting, etc. And all of this brings up the related issue of spoilers. While you may reread a classic detective novel multiple times, it is nice to read the first time and not know what's going to happen. This is a big problem if you're trying to make a podcast about detective fiction. Very occasionally. I think I've maybe had two or three emails over the whole time I've been doing it from people saying, oh, I hadn't read that book, and now you told me who did it, so now I can't read it which A, I think you can still read it, and B, you know, the book was published in 1925. What did you expect me to do? Um, uh, But then I also, I, but I do have some acknowledgement of the fact that a lot of the people listening to my podcast, I think, are relative newcomers. You know, they might have read some Agatha Christie, but they haven't necessarily explored some of the other lesser known authors. So I don't want to just you know, tell them left, right and centre all the plots. So I try where I can not to do that. But then I get messages from people saying like, oh, you just don't really go into enough detail about anything. I really wanted to. So I feel sometimes like I'm trapped between these two competing, conflicting ideas and I can't keep everybody happy, essentially. A really good example of this actually is um, Agatha Christie's The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which has... Christie's famously biggest twist where... Wait, do you want to know the ending? I'll let you ponder that one. How much does the ending really matter? And I'm going to move on to trope number four. But before I do that, I'm going to take a very quick break to tell you two things. Firstly, Patreon. This show takes a long, long time to make each fortnight and I'm trying to make things a little bit more sustainable. If you'd like to support what I do, you can head to patreon.com slash WTTE. So that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash WTTE. And have a look at how you can support the show. This is episode eight of season three. There are two more episodes left before I take a break to do some research and get together a new season. If you are a Patreon supporter, however, it won't be the end. I'm currently working on some bonus material, which will be available exclusively to Patreon supporters. I'll be announcing more details of this very soon, but in the meantime, if you sign up at patreon.com slash WTTE, you won't miss out on anything. The second thing I wanted to tell you is that this podcast is a part of the Wonderful Headstuff Podcast Network. So if you want to hear some other great Irish audio, just go to headstuff.org for a fantastic selection. Now, back to the show. Trope number four. There's always a detective... And they're a very specific kind of detective. Monsieur Poirot is a detective. This is the world's most celebrated crime fighter. I take a professional interest in crime. Firstly, it's one detective, not a police force, not multiple detectives. 
They might be a former police officer, but more often than not, they're amateur sleuths, dilettantes. They are you and me. And on their own, like the individual reader, they can follow the clues and solve the mystery. And these detectives were not all men. Female detectives had been around since the late 19th century, and there's an episode of this very podcast on Baroness Ortsy and her trailblazing early female detective Lady Molly. You can have a listen to episode 15 right after this. But even when these detectives were male, they often embodied what were thought of at the time as feminine traits or abilities, female intuition or a close familiarity with the domestic sphere. I think where you're writing stories where minute details uh, you know, add up into the solution, that detective fiction is nothing else, the elucidation of many small, seemingly unimportant details into a complicated and surprising whole. Um, When you're, especially if you're trying to set those in a vaguely domestic sphere, which a lot of the time, that is what detective novels at this time are trying to do because they want it to be recognisable to the reader. Then I do think that women sometimes are better placed to write that just because they know what goes on in the home. They know what it means um, for a certain fabric to be used for something or for food to be prepared in a certain way, um, which, you know, men of the time would be largely ignorant of. Um, There's a really interesting short story that Agatha Christie wrote that um, turns on the discovery of a pin on the floor, which I think illustrates this really well, where someone's, uh, a woman is found strangled in her home no one else was there no one else was seen to be there um and the dressmaker who was visiting her to do a fitting is the one who finds the body and a policeman you know who's searching the scene of the crime he finds a pin um but he just files it away with the other evidence he's like right so there's a pin on the floor who cares miss marple looks at this pin and goes but that's a dressmaker's pin that's not the kind of pin i would use when i was doing you know more rough and ready sewing around the place that to me says that she already had her dress fitting the dressmaker had already been in the house so why is she lying about that maybe she's the one who did the murder um so that's the kind of clue that i think a male writer would be like pins are pins whatever um whereas a female writer would be like there are specific types of pins for different kinds of sewing and they belong to specific professions and this is how i can tell what happened um so i do think that there's something about that that when you're writing something that is all about inconsequential details the people who are the masters of the inconsequential details will be better at it. There are similarities with Sherlock Holmes here, but it's not the same. That Where you do have that kind of omniscient male detective in the model of Sherlock Holmes, it's always explained that he, he collects and studies irrelevant information. You know, he wrote a monograph on different types of cigarette ash or whatever, that he has acquired this, no- this knowledge very deliberately. Um, whereas Miss Marple she hasn't done that she just knows what pins are you know it's sort of it's innate as opposed to acquired which i think is an interesting difference female intuition is also central that comes out a lot i think with miss marple and to a lesser extent harriet vane in some of dorothy l sayers novels where quite often that is after you know miss marple has worked with the police on a few different Uh, cases and she is known to the chief constable and when she happens to pop up in a new case the police will say things like ah yes miss marple you had wonderful intuition on that case we worked on before you know what are you feeling this time um 
so they they do cast her in that kind of yeah we accept you were helpful but because of your you know feminine skills as opposed to because actually uh, someone I interviewed once said that Miss Marple has a mind like a steel trap um, and I think that's a really good phrase that she's got this kind of absolutely ruthlessly logical deductive brain um, so yeah they do cast her as like the sort of female brain as opposed to she could just be really good at detecting i.e. the thing that the men are supposed to do I'm quite sure you mean well Inspector but if you imagine that I am going to sit back and let everybody regard me as a dotty old maid you are very much mistaken and these female detectives Miss Marple Harriet Vine and many others were created by the major writers of the genre who were themselves female Dorothy L. Sayers Marjorie Allingham Josephine Tay Niall Marsh and of course Agatha Christie so how do these novelists become so popular at a time when, it's fair to say, women were not receiving the recognition they should have been in literature? I have a few different theories about this. I don't know that there is a definitive answer, and if there is, I don't know what it is. But my main theory is just that I think at the time, and in a way still, detective writing and crime writing is considered to be a genre. It's it's a part, it's separate, it's not literary. And Therefore, I think it's always been lower status. And this applies to other genres like romance and sci-fi and horror and stuff. The fact that we even call the people who practice that kind of writing genre writers as opposed to just writers sort of tells you the way that they've been othered. And I think, therefore, even though, you know, Virginia Woolf was working at this time and she was writing A Room of One's Own and writing about how difficult it was, all the structures that kept women out of the highest literary echelons. I don't think those applied so strictly to crime writing because, quite frankly, those gatekeepers didn't care about it as much. So it wasn't considered silly or inappropriate for a woman to succeed at detective fiction because detective fiction in itself was considered to be a bit silly and inappropriate. But this silly and inappropriate literature was massively popular. Agatha Christie, in particular, was phenomenally successful. She is, with Arthur Conan Doyle, the most significant, popular and influential crime writer of all time. Her books have sold billions of copies. She is, by a considerable distance, the best-selling novelist of all time, the most translated author in the world. And Then There Were None is probably the best-selling novel of all time. And her play The Mousetrap opened in 1952 and is still running in the West End, 27,000 performances later. And her popularity continues unabated. TV adaptations, films, plays, cartoons, games, parodies and pastiches, fan fiction and loving recreations. You can't write a crime story without acknowledging Christie. Whether you're writing it in the style of Golden Age detective fiction or deliberately ignoring it or writing against it, she's always there. I think what works specifically for Christie is that her plots have this, a lot of the time, her plots have this beautiful simplicity about them, which you can't necessarily say of some of the other Golden Age authors. So if you think about something like Murder on the Orient Express, it works beautifully for, it. actually it's a very popular play as well as TV and film. You've got a naturally limited cast of characters because they're all locked in this one train carriage. So you can't have more than about a dozen characters that you have to remember who they are or cast or pay for and a nice limited uh, sort of scene for them to be operating in. Oh, have you been thinking about spoilers? Because I am now going to spoil the ending of Murder in the Orange Express. So, you know, 
don't listen for 10 seconds if you really don't want to know. And then the plot itself, which turns on the fact that somebody gets stabbed to death, not by one person, but in fact by everybody, is a brilliant twist when you're reading it, but also quite a simple idea. Like there's no complicated mechanisms involved in that. And I think a lot of her books have that kind of very simple but profound um, shift in them. There have been a lot of other theories as to why Golden Age detective fiction is so popular, some more credible than others. There's this idea that between the wars, people were so psychologically damaged, they didn't really want to read difficult literature. And the soothing familiarity of detective fiction fulfilled this need for easy, comforting, conservative literature, something sometimes referred to as convalescent literature. There's something to this, the reassuring familiarity of the generally middle-class exclusive setting and the murder committed with an absolute minimum of horrific detail. And certainly the structure of most crime fiction is that Disorder is brought into the world through a murder until a reassuring figure of authority arrives and puts everything back into its proper place. Order is restored and justice is done. But there are problems with this. Detective fiction is not always as conservative, as cosy as it might seem. I mean, I think it's difficult to speak of it as a whole genre, actually, in that sense. Um, But then I think people say it more, perhaps, about the work of Agatha Christie, particularly because... You know, she created a character in Miss Marple who lives in this apparently unchanging little rural village um, with very rigid class structures and all of this kind of thing. Um, And I definitely think there's an extent to which she's reflecting the status quo rather than imagining something better. But I also think that within that, she's, and other authors as well, she's pointing to more radical and interesting ideas. Um, I made a whole episode about the queer subtext in detective fiction, and it crops up several times in Agatha Christie, um, probably most notably in a novel called A Murder is Announced, in which there is an overt lesbian couple, um, just just there. It's not anything remarkable or uh, censured or denigrated. It's They're just there. They're just characters in the story, um, which I think... A lot of the time when people call these things conservative, they're thinking more maybe about the TV adaptations and the nostalgic way those are presented. But I think the books themselves can actually surprise you in that regard. Spoilers aside, Golden Age detective fiction is still full of surprises. It's not as formulaic or as conservative or as cosy as its reputation sometimes suggests. It's not only about a great twist at the end, even if that's certainly part of the appeal. And there's a reason it's still so popular and so influential. The best Golden Age detective fiction can be challenging and beautifully written. It can play fair by the reader or dispense with the rules almost entirely. After all, there are many, many ways an author can answer the question of who done it. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. A huge thanks to my guest this week, Caroline Crampton. Her podcast is She Done It, and it follows up on everything in this episode and much, much more. You can find out more at shedoneitshow.com. For more on Caroline's other work, including a brand new book she's just published, head to carolinecrampton.com. 
And of course, I'll put links to these and to everything on the WTTE website, which is WTTEpodcast.com. WTTEpodcast.com. You can also find links and pictures and transcripts and 31 previous episodes there. So have a look. You can follow the show at Words to That Effect on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm on Twitter at CEDREID, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. Use the hashtag WTTE Podcast if you're talking about the show. And do talk about the show. Spread the word. I would really, really appreciate it. And, of course, you can always show your support at patreon.com slash WTTE. Music this week was Overhead the Albatross, Francesco Teresi, and also... 3Ep Cano. There are links to their music on the WTTE website as well. And that's it. I'll see you in two weeks. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. That's it for today's guest broadcast. A reminder that you can find words to that effect at wttepodcast.com and in all good podcast apps. So do go and check out some of Connor's other episodes now. There's one about Baroness Ortsy that I would particularly recommend, but to be honest, they're all good. I'll be back with a new She Done It on the 4th of September. In the meantime, you can still get bonus episodes of the podcast and content from our detective fiction book club by becoming a paying supporter of the show at shedoneitshow.com slash membership. See you in September. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.